But you know, one of the things that I've learned is that that's actually okay <laughs> to have um, a messy life story. I've been told that our life is like a tapestry. So when you look at it upside down after it's well, like after it's woven, if you look at it upside down, it's a crazy mess, right? All these threads going every which way, and there's no rhyme or reason seemingly to it. But when we reach the end of our life, and in my worldview, when I am in heaven and I look at the other side of the tapestry, it makes sense. Like it's this beautiful piece of art that we can really only understand when the time is right for us to understand it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Flourishing Together. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute, where leaders and their companies become infinitely better, smarter, and healthier. This happens through our leadership development programs that are built on emotional intelligence training, deep mentorship, and teams learning together. We have live video-based programs online and in-person programs in Chicago. For more information, check us out on social media and at thejuntoinstitute.com. So on this episode of Flourishing Together, we have uh, two really special people. Uh, we have Paul Fehrenbacher, one of our alumni, and Mike Chopin, uh, one of our mentors. And we're going to start with Paul. Um, Paul was part of the very first cohort of companies to go through the Junto Institute. Um, so he, uh, along with what four or five of his peer CEOs, uh, hold a very special place in my heart. Uh, at the time, he was a co-founder of a company called Brightseed. And I believe that we're going to cover some ground where uh, you'll learn a little bit more about what happened there. And currently, he is founder and CEO of Mutt Jackson, which is a really fun company that does dog washing stations for people who own dogs. And uh, their very first one was established uh, here in Chicago at Montrose Beach, one of the largest, if not the largest, beach dog park. Uh, in the world. And so as somebody who's not a dog owner, that was uh, interesting for me to learn about. Um, Paul is, uh, in my words, a very intense individual from a professional standpoint, very focused, very ambitious, but has an incredibly deep and large heart and a really incredible soul and has been a really big impact. It's, he's had a big impact on me over the years because I've learned a lot from his experiences. So um, I'm really excited to have him uh, here with us. And we're going to go ahead and get things started uh, by having us go through the emotion wheel. And uh, we're going to start with you, Paul. Awesome. Well, first and foremost, thank you for inviting me to be here, Raman. It's been way too long since you and I last saw each other. So um, I would have said this regardless, but when I looked at the emotion wheel, which once again, has been too long since I've looked at, it struck me as joy. So it's a joy to see uh, as an overarching theme and optimistic. I know that I'm going to date the podcast, but most people in our world right now are operating within the pie sector of fear. It's during the coronavirus pandemic, schools are closing down and going remote. And despite that, any one of these uh, in the joy sector would be one that I choose, but the one that I feel the most right now, which is different than what most people would say is optimistic. So I'm looking forward to sharing my story and telling you why I'm optimistic. Thank you. Um, yeah, as Paul said, we're in the midst of, uh, uh, of a really unusual and strange and uh, worrisome period here. So um, I too have 
a little bit of that, and I rarely feel much in the fear, anger, sadness areas. Um, and it's mostly because, as I shared with Paul before we hit the air, um, there's some uncertainty for both my daughters in terms of where they are um, and where they will be in another couple of weeks. So feeling a little uh, nervous and uh, anxious about that. Um, not worried or scared just yet, but uh, wouldn't surprise me if we get there. At the same time, uh, doing whatever I can to also intentionally, believe it or not, feel some love and joy. And I will say that Paul, the back of your hat helped because I just saw that. Uh, he's got uh, a hat emblazoned with Mutt Jackson on the front and just love on the back. So that was pretty cool to see. So one of the things that I've been doing with the with the podcast is opening each conversation with uh, the question of what your first recollection is of leadership. And so I'd be curious to hear, you know, as you as you hear that question, um, what uh, you recall. Yeah. So for me, my trajectory is a, a unique one. It was circuitous, where I actually was on the medical path. Um, I was a fourth year medical student when I co-founded a company called Brightseed. And growing up, I grew up in a family where my father was a physician and mom was a nurse, so it was just probably overtly assume that the trajectory I would go on would be a professional career. And when I chose to go the route of becoming a physician, it was one that I got a lot of accolades from and support from my family. But in my heart, I always knew that I wanted more than just to be a physician. And I told my parents at a young age that I wanted to job shadow the most successful business person in my hometown when I was 16 years old. And my first sport coat was to do that. I'm going to tie it back into leadership where the people that I looked up to, though, were not the physicians. They were not the attendings or the chairs of departments in surgery. It still was actually people who had an idea as an entrepreneur and saw it come to fruition. Um, I was fortunate enough that my grandfather was one of those people who actually ultimately named this current company I co-founded Mud Jackson after. And the thing that struck me for leadership and the people that I wanted to learn more from were the ones that were servant leaders, um, people that had this persona where people wanted to be around them. They knew that they could trust them. They wanted to follow them. And those leaders were the ones where they wouldn't ask anything of others that they wouldn't do themselves. They put others first. And I was blessed to have my grandfather who did that. And then during one of the darkest periods of my time, which we can talk about with my father, a mentor of mine did that. His name's Dave Dyson down in Miami, who loved me unconditionally. And so it's tough in the entrepreneurial sphere to say you love someone unconditionally, but I think the closest thing you can do that, not that you can't, but you have to set healthy boundaries. How I do it with my team now is servant leadership, where they know they can count on me and I'm not going to ask anything of them that I wouldn't do myself. So, um, I had asked Paul ahead of time um, if he was comfortable talking about a couple things that I knew about him um, that a lot of people know about him, but I, I know perhaps more details only because uh, Paul and I uh, were in uh, the same leadership forum for a good four or five years after Junto got started. And I was not only a facilitator of that group, but also a, a member, a fully participating member. And um, over the course of a few years, I believe, you went through, uh, you experienced some significant losses and uh, transitions in your life. I did. And uh, I'm going to tee up all three of them to be able to share just the gravity of that for people. And then I'm going to just let you kind of tell what you want to tell about them. 
more importantly, though, as, as I shared with you, I'd, I'd like you to talk about kind of how you've grown from them, the impact that it had on them and how it has led you to be where you are today, which I know is a, in a much healthier place than years ago. So in a span of what, three years or so, three or four years, um, Paul, you, you lost your father, who was a very important figure in your life. You uh, went through a divorce and, and that caused also some personal challenges for you. And then third, kind of coinciding with that was also kind of a breakup in at Brightseed, which That's is right. a company that you were leading as a co-founder and CEO and were really looked to as the leader. So pretty heavy stuff. And uh, you were great about bringing that to some of the conversations that we had in our forum in Junto and uh, developing very close relationships with all of us. Um, and so, like I said, rather than kind of going through all the nitty gritty of it, um, it's more about kind of how it has affected you and how you've grown from it. So I'd love for you to kind of just build off of it from there. Yeah. It was a blessing that I went through Junto, the inaugural class, right before all that happened. In a very short time frame, it'd take me a bit to recollect the exact time period. It's one of the things where it's all kind of a haze, that whole time period. Went through Junto. I seemingly was on the top of my personal and professional life when... You hear about the uh, everything changes in a heartbeat type thing. And that happened to me when uh, at Brightseed, we were fortunate to have won quite of awards at the Rice Business Plan Competition, which I don't know if it still is, but it used to be one of the biggest there is in the, in the world for that right. matter. And one of the awards we won was, was from NASA. And they were investing in us because our technology, I won't go into great detail, but it allowed minimally invasive surgery, laparoscopic and robotic surgery to be safer by helping the surgeon understand what they were cutting before they were cutting. And God willing, in our lifetime, astronauts will go to the likes of Mars and whatnot. So NASA was prepared to, if needed, perform some types of surgeries on the astronauts and they mm -hmm. invested in our technology. And so my co-founder, Jonathan Gunn, who was a dear friend of mine, um, and I were fortunate enough to fly down to Houston. We met with our angel group down there, and then we got to go to NASA. We got a tour of NASA. Um, we came back literally high-fiving each other on top of the world, and we took a red-eye to Chicago from Houston, and I'm greeted by um, the notification that my wife uh, at the time wanted to separate from me. And that kind of was the start of a... Uh, a downward spiral. And I don't blame my ex-wife. I don't blame any of my business partners at Brightseed. Well, and then ultimately my dad had, um, my dad had actually passed around that same time, but I saw one of the tough things about my dad and my relationship was he passed very suddenly, actually passed from a aggressive form of cancer. But prior to that, it was uh, kind of one thing after the next. He was in a serious car accident. I'm sure yep. you remember this. Yep. Uh, after visiting me at medical school, I was going to medical school at Northwestern. And from that, he had a traumatic brain injury that uh, made him effectively bipolar. So he attempted suicide a couple times. And God bless him, he found meaning in life without practicing medicine. Um, he, he was the town doc in Charleston, Illinois, delivering babies, taking care of the elderly, had a very successful practice. But for him, it was more about the joy that he had kind of being the, the town physician. 
and people looking up to him. And that was stri stripped from him. And so he saw me in medical school at the time. And in the back of my mind, I always knew that I wanted to be something besides a physician. But because of the fact that it's such a prestigious career, and my father kind of started to see me living out his, I don't know, expectations of me. And he also had a lot of regret because when he got in his car accident, he was coming to visit me. And he literally had told me at times, Raman, if I dropped out of medical school, it would have been the worst outcome of his car accident. Mm -hmm. So there was a ton of pressure with yeah. all that. And right around the time where Bright Seed started to take off, I remember it well because we had our, our business cards with our logo on it. I'll tell you how I can remember that because my dad had passed, but he saw he passed from aggressive cancer unrelated to the, the car accident, unrelated to the suicide attempts. Um, but he had lived just long enough to see that Brightseed was taking off and that I was doing what I wanted to do and that I was good at it to the point where he wanted to invest in Brightseed. And I said, Dad, you, you don't need to invest. Like just knowing that you are excited about what I'm doing is enough. And, um, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but at his visitation, I stuck one of my Brightsea business cards mm. into his uh, into his coat pocket, and I really saw Brightsea as my way to fulfill my dreams of being an entrepreneur. Rewind back from getting back from the NASA trip, that changed in a heartbeat. I faced something very similar to what my dad did in terms of this identity crisis. Um, I didn't want to be a physician. Uh, in order for me to continue on and be the CEO that Brightsea needed, I needed to finish my medical degree. Uh, I had a wife at the time who kind of had aspirations of being married to a physician. She and I met volunteering in Haiti, and she was supporting me in my entrepreneurial endeavors, but um, always kind of under the pretense that eventually I would practice medicine. And so I went through a period of time, and I'm not ashamed to say it, of deep depression. And I paid the consequences of that by um, having to kind of exit Brightseed and retrospect in a manner that I wish I would have handled differently. Um, I ultimately got divorced. I lost my dogs uh, that I considered like kids through that divorce process. It was a challenging time. Um, and I can count you, I can count some of the other Junto members as people that I leaned on deeply during that very dark period. But I knew that there was a, a light at the end of the tunnel. My faith is something that you know that I'm not abashed to share. And I, I, I knew that for me, suicide was something that I would never do. I contemplated it, um, but I knew I'd never do. And I reminded myself that my grandfather, who I idolized and kind of made me want to be an entrepreneur, and my dad, despite his suicide attempts, persevered through them. Um, and then I had a small cadre of friends in Chicago that I could count on that I would get out of it. Like, this too shall pass. And um, we can talk about the new company I started. But you asked me what I learned through the process. Um, I think the biggest thing is that this, this too shall pass. Um, I learned to not live my life for other people, uh, whether that be parents or, or whomever. I learned to value relationships deeply, very deeply. For me, being an entrepreneur, it's not about the potential 
successful gain. It's about the ability to form in a really unique way, awesome relationships with people, um, both as a leader of a company and then just through developing a personal network to accomplish things with. And then through much accent, I learned that I was made to be living the life that I'm living. If someone would have told me when I was in my 20s or early 30s that I'd be known as the dog wash guy, <laughs> I would have told them they were absolutely nuts. Um, we're back in your hometown of Charleston, Illinois, where you were supposed to. Yeah, I was be a valedictorian of my high school and <laughs> right? went to Notre Dame and Northwestern Medical School, and I'm the Chicago dog wash guy. <laughs> If you if you want a damn good dog wash, there's no one better to know than Paul Ferenbacher. And I'm, I'm a okay with that. I'm saying that somewhat tongue in cheek, but um, the brand Mud Jackson stands for so much more than just dog washes. It's really kind of a embody, it embodies who I am and what I stand for. You notice on the back of my hat when we're looking at the Junto wheel that there's the phrase "Just Love," and I've got to credit that to Brian Burkhart, who is um a partner in the Much Axon Venture and a dear friend that's part of the Junto family um, for coming up with that. And um, it's really is a kind of a joy to live my life for an, I say an audience of one. And for me, that audience is God. And if I'm living my audience for him, then I know that everyone else will be in a really good space when they relate to me. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, <laughs> where do we start to dig in there? I just <laughs> literally laid my life. And you know what? I actually was reluctant. Ram and you texted me earlier yeah. today. Like, can we talk about Bright Sea? Can we talk about the divorce? And um, I texted back, sure thing. And then I said, nothing is, is off limits that we can discuss today. And I think this is a testimony of where I'm at in my life now, where I hope to start to live my life where I can share things that I've learned with others and not feel like I need to hide things. Like it's hard to talk about suicide. It's hard to talk about depression. It's hard to talk about effectively being kicked out of a company that you co-founded. But I'm in a place now where if I'm living for an audience of one, like I, I know where my identity stands. So there's nothing off limits. Well, I, I don't even know how to say it aside because it sound it feels like it's going to sound trite by just saying, I appreciate the courage in doing so. Yeah. Um, one of our other mentors uh, several years ago said, strength is what we need to turn to when we have to do things. Courage is what we use when we want to do things. And so this is not something you had to do, right? You did it on your own accord. So I appreciate the courage that, that it takes to do something like that as someone who hasn't had to go through all that you have. It's a complicated story too. It's It's hard to figure out a way to share it without it seeming so messy. But you know, one of the things that I've learned is that that's actually okay <laughs> to have um, a messy life story. I've been told that our life is like a tapestry. So when you look at it upside down after it's like after it's woven, if you look at it upside down, it's a crazy mess, right? All these threads going every which way, and there's no rhyme or reason seemingly to it. But when we reach the end of our life, and in my worldview when I am in heaven and I look at the other side of the tapestry, it makes sense. Like it's this beautiful piece of art that we can really only understand when the time is right for us to understand it. That's a beautiful way to put it. So you brought up the depression uh, that you experienced while the divorce was unfolding. And and we lived that, you know, with you through the forum. Um, 
there were one or two sessions, if I remember correctly, that were, where you just weren't able to show up. And we were, if you recall, you know, we had a, a code, if you will, which was it's all or nothing. Like we would not meet if anyone, but in this case, it was like last minute where we didn't know. Yeah. Right? You were in that place where you weren't even able to bring yourself to communicating with, with us no, in, like that, in that context. Eating food and taking care of daily necessities yeah. was a chore at that time. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we have, I think in the past five to seven years, kind of coinciding with your own journey is the entrepreneurial world has become much more comfortable talking about mental illness and how, and especially how entrepreneurs face it under very unique uh, circumstances, right? Given the dynamics of being an entrepreneur and, and starting a company. So I'd love for you to share, you know, how you, how that strengthened you. Um, as a leader and having been through that. And and again, as someone who hasn't personally to the right. depths that you did, um, I can't speak to it myself, but I know a number of entrepreneurs who have, but would love to hear as you look back in the mirror, um, how that kind of has helped create today's Paul. And especially as it relates to what you said earlier about being a servant leader. First of all, I owe you, I'm going to say it, you're going to say it. I shouldn't say, but I owe you guys an apology. Like I was not a good Junta cohort member. I was not a good friend. Um, it's not a good family member. I definitely wasn't good to myself. Like there's a phrase for depression is it's anger turned in words. And there are plenty of people that I could quote unquote be angry with, not righteously, but just through the circumstances could have vented at. I was most angry with myself. And um, through, it was, it was a dark, dark depression. I mean, I knew I couldn't commit suicide cause I had seen firsthand how that affected my family when my dad attempted suicide, but I was close and I come from a it, it's depression, mental health in general is a complicated thing. There's definitely a genetic component to it, which I, I had no choice that I probably got um, aspects of depression from both sides of my family. I have an uncle that's committed suicide on my mom's side. I have a cousin that's committed suicide on my mom's side. Um, and depression kind of runs through both sides as well. I never really experienced quote unquote depression until I was in medical school actually. So, um, I had through my early twenties was a happy, successful person who seemingly had the world by the tail. Um, through my twenties and even through today, depression's always kind of, it's in the rear view mirror. It's always kind of, there's something I need to be cognizant of. But through that, what I learned is, um, I'm not alone. You touched upon it. Like one of the things that I would do when I had the capacity to in the depths of depression is I started to read a lot. And there are some very well-known entrepreneurs who, boldly have been outspoken about their depression. Brad Feld comes to mind and um, other people. There's also studies that show that for whatever reason, the percentage of entrepreneurs that have mental health issues, whether it be depression or hypomania or whatever else, is higher than the general public. Significantly higher. Um, there's people within, I'm not going to share any names, but there's mentors within Junto who during that dark period of time had come to me and said, I have it. This is how I've dealt with it. And one of them in particular comes to mind who said this, then he's the one who referenced a lot of these studies. Like 
I've dug in deep to this. Like there is for whatever reason, something that allows entrepreneurs to go and do these crazy things, but also have this quote unquote struggle in their, their life. But what I learned through it, Raman, is um, to not live my life for other people. Like that's, that's what I really was doing. The other thing too is, and part of that is to really take care of myself. I had lost a sense of, um, by trying like during those bright sea days, by trying to feel like I had to prove myself to other people, I'd lost a sense of who I really was. Um, I wasn't relying well on my faith. Uh, I wasn't going outdoors fishing and being on the water or something that's near and dear to me. Um, I'm not perfect by it at any means, but I'm trying to be a lot more uh, healthy and holistic in terms of how I uh, approach life. I don't necessarily look at now, but um, working out more. Um, my dogs, got two new dogs. I lost two in the divorce that I love dearly. And over time, got two more, Dufresne and Dwight. God bless them. They're my alarm clock. I don't need to set an alarm clock because as soon as the sun rises, Dwight is right in my face, licking my nose, saying it's time to go outside. They're very active dogs, so I have to jog with them, take them out. I've learned um, to how to kayak with them. Um, I've learned, Raman, that uh, I listened to Brian Burkhart's podcast today. He said something that was like, life is too long to not do right. Yeah, I, I never, never heard that before because everyone always, obviously says life is too short. And he's right. Like a lot of people would look at where I'm at right now. I'm 41 years old and say, like, what are you doing? Like you, you're not married. You have no kids. You're a medical school dropout. And I look at it and say, I sure there's things I changed, but I'm so excited about the next God willing 41 years. Um, because I'm not living for expectations of other people. And I also am not ashamed to admit that I have depression, right? Therapy is something that I, I don't talk to Thayer as much as I used to, but when needed, I can text Thayer and, and he and I can chat. Um, I've also, through my life hardship, have a way to relate to people that is not superficial. And I think I have enough shared experiences with variety of life and professional things that allows me to connect with people in a way that I find a lot of joy in. You bring that like into the workplace now? I do. Yeah. yeah. We still have a really small team, but yeah. um, Joanne and Steven, my team members at Mutt Jackson, who I work with day to day, we hire a lot of people during the summer for our Montrose Dog Beach location. But day in, day out, it's Steven, Joanne that I work with. And um, there's nothing that I've said thus far that they don't know yeah. about me. Because I think that's one of the things that, well, first of all, we don't talk about it enough in Junto, and these conversations happen a lot. But in the broader, you know, business environment, it's talked about. It, it is not talked about at all enough. And the, where I'm going with this is that, um, and in a similar vein is what you just mentioned about Brian's quote about life is too long. Someone made a, a great had a great quote about this idea that opening up brings us closer mm -hmm. that, that sometimes we think that opening up and being vulnerable pushes people away because they're afraid of of it and, and what we've learned is it brings people closer yeah it's the right? exact opposite exactly and we know that because of the experience we had in our forum where it, you know we i think every single one of us said multiple times that you guys are and it was all man when you guys are hearing things about me that no one else knows right and so i'm fascinated by 
this idea of you sharing all of this with your team members in terms of what it does in the business. And you talked about the importance you put on relationships and how it will bring you together, not as coworkers, but as friends and as human beings. That's right. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that in terms of how it manifests on a day-to-day basis, um, how it's changed the relationships and so on. Um, it's created a, a immense amount of trust yeah. for the effort that Joanne and Steven put in for Mutt Jackson for what they get from a financial gain is peons, right? Like one of the things I love is that we're so fully invested in creating this thing because we not only trust each other and believe in each other, we love each other. I've told Joanne that I love her. I need to tell Steven that I, I love him, but yeah, like I, we shared a call this morning. We decided to start to work remotely because we have the luxury of doing it in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And the first good portion of the call was talking about how Steven just got his, uh, he and his husband are buying their first house and got their house inspected. So we were so excited to hear how that was. We haven't had a chance to tell you yet, but um, Much Axon partnered with a local Jeep dealership who provided us a kick-ass four-door Wrangler Rubicon that we're going to wrap Much Axon and and Merino Chrysler Jeep Dodge. And initially, the mock-ups that that Brian's Square Planet company was creating for the wrap were stock images of dogs. And I was like, I want this to be personal. This is us. So we hired a professional photographer two days ago to take pictures, not just of Dwight and Dufresne, but Joanne's dog, Leo, is there. Steven and Logan's dog, Sophia, is there. Like This is us doing this together. What's cool is that we're a seasonal business. So at Montrose Dog Beach, we hire, give or take, 20 people on a seasonal um, role. And that is evident by the fact that over the course of that season, we kind of become a Mutt Jackson family. I don't go into nearly as much depth as I have on this podcast that I do with our seasonal staff, but they know that they can count on us. Like there's an element of, um, I don't know, emotional intelligence is a, a word that we use a lot at Mutt Jackson. And it's, it's something that I really think that it's become contagious in a good way for us to practice that as a team. We do an end of the season celebration at Mutt Jackson with our entire team. And by the end of it, it's 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 like a family gathering um, where we hang out. Yeah. So what what's the future holding for you? It's a really interesting time. It's time for us to grow this big dog into something that has a ton of potential. We are working as we speak to open up a second dog beach location in Chicago. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot, to her credit, has said that she wants equanimity between what the north side and south side have when it comes to the parks. So um, the site that we're trying to partition off a dog beach area has the most amazing view of the Chicago skyline. We're seeking out a year round location to have uh, Mutt Jackson dog washes. One of the brilliant things about the dog washes, and I don't need to go in great depth about it, is they're meant to be a passive income stream. You can swipe a credit card, rent shampoo, condition, blow dry your dogs. And the ideal business model is you find storefronts with a timed door where people can come in at their leisure and use the dog washes. So we're seeking out a space where we can have that kind of at the front of house and the back of house do fun events. One of the sweet spots that we've created with Mud Jackson is um, doing dog-friendly events like yoga with your dog, um, singles night, dog photography night, uh, 
whatnot. So we're going to hopefully open up the second location in Chicago and then supplement Montrose Dog Beach on the north side, south side at Oakwood Beach with a whole lot of the passive income stream locations where people can wash their dogs throughout it and use the dog beaches to spread the word that those are available throughout Chicago. Nice. Um, all right. Uh, thank you for all that. Um, as we do in all the Junto sessions that you experienced, um, we close with appreciations. So um, would you like to go first? Or you want me to go first? I can go. Uh, I appreciate Rama that you saw this idea of Junto um, come to fruition and that we being your first cohort had the opportunity to have you actually be part of our, our group with, with the, we just had guys. So I'm going to say group of guys in our cohort. And through that, we talked about these very real, um, things of, that we, for the most part, not shared with professionally, definitely anyone, much less personally. And it gave, it, taught me to have the courage to be vulnerable, like you said earlier in the podcast of not being ashamed to within reason, let our guard down with people. And it also made me realize what counts most for me is relationships, that that's the currency that I'm trying to invest in. And um, what you created was really the epitome of it. I'm embarrassed to say that I have to my detriment, have not been involved in as much Junto stuff as I should have. So um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to reconnect via the podcast. And let's not uh, let us not let too much time pass before we get on the water again in the kayaks. Yeah, you got it. Um, two things. I, I appreciate your vulnerability, you know, without, without a doubt, um, as, as I kind of alluded to earlier. But uh, even... Even though I know you've shared this many times with not just those of us who are in the, in the forum together, maybe even others in Junto, it's different when there's a microphone and uh, this is going out there into the interwebs and not knowing you know whose phone it ends up on that's listening, um, whether they know you or not. So just appreciate the vulnerability. And I also um, appreciate your resilience. What you have been through is remarkable. And to see that, yes, you, you there were struggles with it along the way, as you've already talked about, but to see you come out of it all, and I know it's going to be with you all the time. You know, I've heard from some people who have lived through depression who've said that it's, that it's stayed with them. And again, I, I can't relate to that. I just have to trust the words. So knowing that it's not leaving you entirely and it's a part of your tapestry, as you mentioned earlier, um, is very inspiring to hear, yet at the same time, just recognizing that the resilience and strength you've shown is also inspiring to all of us because we're all going to go through lots of stuff in our life. And I think it's stories like yours that give us that confidence and hope that maybe we can get through it, even though at the time it might seem like it's impossible. Our next guest is Mike Chopin. Uh, Mike has been a mentor with the Junto Institute for the last few years, and um, one who has not only given a lot to us um, and the companies he's mentored, but also Mike has taken advantage of the community in a healthy and, and um, virtuous way, and also some of the learning opportunities that we have to offer. Um, he has a deep background as an investor, board member, advisor, and company operator. Uh, currently serving as a partner with Zenfinity Capital, uh, where he not only invests in companies in the consumer products and retail sectors, but also helps uh, Zenfinity's existing portfolio companies grow. 
Um, on the one hand, Mike can be very clinical, direct, and analytical, yet he finds a way to harmonize that with a really deep sense of caring and humanity. So I'm really excited to have Mike here today. Okay, Mike, um, we're going to get started, and it's a pleasure having you here on uh, Flourishing Together. Thank you for having me. Uh, as we do with so many of our Junto sessions, we're going to kick things off with having you share um, how you're feeling right now, and you've got a wheel in front of you, so please fire away. So I today am feeling thankful for being here and grateful I have the opportunity. Uh, I am a bit nervous, I would say. Uh, not to level of anxious or hysteria, hysteria sorry, but uh, it's always interesting to share your feelings on these things. And so there's a little bit of uh, anxiousness inside of me. Thank you for being candid. It's one of the things that I love about um, everybody who's associated with Junto in using the wheel. Um, boy, I've got a lot here that I'm that I'm feeling. And interestingly enough, today's one of those very, very few days where I'm feeling a little bit more in the orange and the red. Um, not necessarily classic fear or anger, but um, a little bit agitated and maybe, maybe a little bit agonized. So that's more on the sadness side. Yet at the same time, uh, pretty euphoric, elated, excited, content, delighted, playful, and triumphant. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, like we typically start, uh, we're going to begin with the first recollection that you have of leadership. Um, I thought back to childhood and sports and athletics and when I was younger and I thought about people all moving in the same direction and was trying to think of a specific moment in time where I said, that is leadership. And uh, I didn't really come up with a good one. And so I went and looked up what the word leadership meant again. And I like the Junto definition, which is a deliberate cause of moving people forward. And it moved me later in years uh, towards clubs in middle school and high school where I felt like rather than having an adult who was telling us what to do as the leader, peers were doing it. And different memories of individuals came up at that time period, um, that, in that sort of mental mode that I was in. Uh, and they were all about the same time, right around when I was 11 and 12 years old, whether it was student government or uh, other clubs we were starting or my continuing soccer career, which I had done at that point, where we were choosing what was going on. It was all about the same age. And I found that really interesting when I thought about that, uh, rather than thinking of a traditional set of the word leader. Hmm. It's interesting you, you say that because uh, you and I were talking a little bit about how children tend to respond with the emotion wheel and how we're so uh, unburdened by mental cognitive processes and systems and um, biases and preferences and kids just kind of do things naturally. And it's the type of thing that as adults, we could never just come together and choose to do, a bunch of us choose to do something in tandem with one another, kind of demonstrating that leadership. Yeah. And it was, it's interesting. And as I watch my children go through this, this time as well, to see how, how they view the world, the lens they look at it. And the timing of those changes coincided very much with what I saw as leadership, mm -hmm. which was a specific decided upon goal by an individual to then coerce a group to do something different. Yeah. Whereas 
you know, when I was in my single digits and my children in the single digits, it was never really that thought upon. It wasn't, it wasn't something they decided to do. It was, we will do this just because we will do it. Right. And uh, that was really an interesting aha for me as I was thinking about that question. Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay. So uh, as you kind of alluded to, um, I sent you a handful of questions and uh, you've come up with a few things also that uh, you were curious to dive into. So I'm really excited about some of these things we're going to explore. Um, so I want to start with something that has become a little bit of a tribal story within the Junto Institute that you may not even be aware of. Um, but that is that uh, three or four years ago, well, m more than three years ago, four or five years ago, when uh, Catherine, my co-founder, was still here in Chicago, we had a session, I can't remember what it was, and, um, and I don't even remember what the conversation was about, but um, you said to her, she was talking about our team, and you responded to her by saying uh, the following, Catherine, we're a part of the team. And you were referring to the we, um, in, in saying the we, you were referring to the mentors as a collective. So that's become a little bit of a tribal story because it was one of the first times um, that we began to see that as well. It was just like coincidental. But candidly, I was surprised to hear that you mm -hmm. said that. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts or ideas about why I might have been surprised because we've never talked about it. No, we haven't. Uh, so from a session, it was a, a vision, mission, values workshop. I went to it by myself because I wanted to see what some of the companies were going through as I was doing the mentorship experience because I didn't really know. Yeah. And Catherine and I had a one-off side conversation uh, where this came up. And if I recall correctly, she was worrying about how you were going to handle all the growth that was going on at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, as to why you're curious it wasn't me, I'll, I'll say one, I, I was a newer mentor at the time, uh, but I'm not exactly the cheerleader personality, let's say that. I'm usually uh, and naturally the skeptic in the room. Uh, my profession is to look at things and find where things might go wrong so that everyone else can help things go right. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't generate a rah-rah personality very often, at least outwardly. I like to refer to myself as a closet cheerleader. I really do root for people. It's one of the things I enjoy most about working with entrepreneurs is I get inspired and energized by their vision and their ability to fight against all odds. And that's why I choose to help them professionally. I also don't really have that as much inside of myself. And you guys were in the same spot. And at the time, she was trying to understand her support mechanisms. and. It came naturally. It wasn't anything that was contrived. But yeah, I don't think that is a, the first uh, – cheerleader is not the first descriptive word people would use when thinking of me. Yeah. Well, you're right on with that. I wouldn't have used the word cheerleader. Um, the other reason why I was surprised was you at that time – and again, like you, like you kind of alluded to, it was you were early in your mentoring experience and therefore it was early in our relationship as well, right? Mm -hmm. a, at a one-to-one -one level at a professional level. And so what little I had known of you at the time was totally influenced by the few interactions that we had had at that time, during which we, uh, for most of us, especially those of us with the kinds of backgrounds that you and I have, either professionally or culturally and personally, a little bit of our guard is up. We're not being completely 
open, transparent, et cetera. And so it was the first time that I had heard a human share from you as opposed to a technical or business share. Mm -hmm. You were kind of like all business up to that point in my mind. And I think part of it might have been influenced by the fact that it was with Catherine, who, as you know, is much more human than she is business. And I historically were, was the opposite. I'm hoping I've evolved since then. So that was why I was very pleasantly surprised by it. And, uh, and she and I still refer to it periodically. That's great. Yeah. All right. So that example that I just shared was four or five years ago. And then just as recently as last month, a few weeks ago, you and I met uh, just to catch up on a couple of things. And one of the things that you teed up was that you have this interest in becoming a better advisor and, and better mentor, which as you probably could imagine, like really, really got me going. Like I love hearing that kind of thing, right? Because th that's kind of what Punto is all about. Um, but what I didn't explore that day was where that desire kind of stemmed from. And so I, I'd love to hear the origin of that. Um, and then secondly, almost more importantly is as a result of that uh, realization, what have you been doing, you know, mm -hmm. to kind of pursue that intent? So I found myself um, at a natural pause where I was able to do some introspection and uh, I felt out of balance. And uh, what's interesting is for most people, the word balance connotes an image of no movement. Whereas for me, it actually is more movement in the sense that you have all these opposes, opposing forces working at the same time to make you not move. And I felt like certain portion of my uh, movement, I'll just use that, was pulling me really far in one direction. And I wanted to move more back towards balance. Hmm. And one of the things that I really enjoy about my time with Junto is that the tools we utilize here, specifically in our sessions, actually help me to be more balanced because they pull me away from sharing first. They pull me away from knowing the answer. They help me slow down. And I felt a lot of those things were moving away from me. And therefore, it became natural to ask you, how do I move back towards that and have that conversation about it with you? Uh, I want to, in, in my professional role, I, in essence, advise all day. I mentor all day. Uh, I'm an investor by trade, but the investing portion of it, the actual writing the check is such a small portion of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. What I do is build relationships to hopefully help influence outcomes in a positive direction for everyone involved. And I was missing something. And I recognized it. And when you recognize it, you act on it. And that was the initiation of the conversation. That was the why. So you said that you recognized in the all the movements you were being pulled in a direction. So my clarifying question is what was that direction that you were you found yourself being pulled towards? I found myself leading conversations much more than listening. I found myself directing uh, versus conducting. And there's a difference between telling someone what the outcome should be versus helping them get there. Uh, and I didn't really enjoy that. Mm. It, it was taxing actually after a while. Even though 
people were being successful and where they were getting to, it didn't feel like collectively we were growing. And that definitely didn't feel like they were growing. And to me, that was bothersome because that inhibits my long-term goal of building these deep relationships, which I can constantly rely upon for the rest of my life across a multitude of different things. Rather, I became a I was feeling as if I was being a, a task-oriented individual, which, look, that's my history. That's right. where I come from. Uh, but that's not where I hope to evolve to. Yeah. Uh, it As you were saying that, what the thought that, I, that was coming to my mind was early in my journey with emotional intelligence, um, one of the mentors that I was blessed to have um, was a gentleman named Jim Leotode, who um, has had significant influence on Junto's early years. And he had done a lot of work with emotional intelligence in the context of leadership and um, executives. And one of the things that he always would say was, remember that it's all about them. It's not all about us. And so that was what go that was going through my mind as you were talking about that. That in my experience, every time I found myself kind of directing something, leading something, instructing people, telling them what to do, et cetera, it was more about me than it was about them. But then when I flipped that proverbial switch and started asking questions, listening more, letting them experience silence and reflection, it became more about them. And it's a really powerful shift that occurs over the course of time. So I appreciate you having that realization in this context. I think that um, it's interesting. It's also timely with the point in life, right? You know, uh, professionally, I'm in a situation where more people are doing the doing than I am. Um, from a familial standpoint, as a parent, my children are starting to do their own doing. And it's uncomfortable to not have your hands on this proverbial steering wheel, but rather to let somebody else drive. And I felt that some of that creates a disconnect. But on the other hand, if you're able to learn the skill set, not necessarily master it, but continually mm -hmm. evolve with yep. it, wow, how powerful is oh, that? Yeah. Think about the leverage you get uh, across of time, the freedom you get, knowing that things are being taken care of or values are being created without you having to do anything. I mean, that sounds like an oasis to some extent, but it's very nerve wracking. It's why we, so back to, you know, you, you mentioned the definition we like to use of leadership, which is moving people in the direction we're going. And one of the things that I always add to that is the word moving has a dual meaning. There is the moving, there's the, like the physical moving, which is um, we're trying to actually get this business, this organization, this team to a certain place. And so as a result, we need to be doing this work to get there. But there's also the emotional moving, right? Which is more of the inspiration. And that's kind of what you're getting at, which is moving people emotionally. Um, and that's hard for many of us to do who have t the types of st backgrounds and styles that people like you and I do. Yes. Cool. All right. Um, so let's go back to this idea of balance and what you said about some of the tactics that we use at Junto. Because um, one thing that was really interesting that you said is that the idea of shared experiences, which is what we practice in Junto, helps you find balance. Mm -hmm. And if I may, I'm going to share a little story here um, from like 
10 minutes after, or the, I'm sorry, the day after your very first mentor meeting in Junto. <laughs> you remember the, the call? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so you go ahead. So, um, we invite Mike to be a mentor. He attends his first mentor meeting. And, uh, part of what I do in these meetings is I just watch and observe and listen. Um, I periodically lightly facilitate, but I spend most of my time doing the former. And I could just tell during this meeting, Mike's a little uncomfortable, but we were like, and we, interestingly, we were sitting on couches and goofy chairs because it wasn't a conventional boardroom environment. Sure enough, the next day, Mike calls me up and says, I know what these guys need to do. I like, can I just tell them? And, and I said, well, you're welcome to do what you want outside of the uh, program, but within the program, that's not what we do. We share experiences. So. That was the first time that we had that conversation. And the cool thing was, it was the last time we had that conversation. Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about how this concept of shared experiences helps you find that balance that you spoke of earlier. So it was funny. I, when you said, when you preempted this and we didn't talk about this before, right. it was, it was going to be one of two calls we had. The first one was going to be that mm -hmm. experience sharing, which we'll dig into. The second one was going to be how much I talked which I'll talk about that as well too. So we'll cover both of those. Uh, the whole concept of sharing experiences really put a wonderful framework into my mind that I utilize in many different settings today. And I think it adds empathy above all that allows the receiver to lower their guard in a way that they're not conscious of and to then apply it to what they have with their perceived view of the facts and the rules of the road today, which by the way, I'll never know because I'm not in their shoes. And so if I can share with them how other companies may have thought through problems or I have thought through problems and how I came to conclusions, they now understand the framework to do it. And to me, that is extremely powerful. The challenge in we do this as well is curating the question. What are they really asking? And I, th I find that as we've shifted the sessions over the years to helping them do that as a group collectively, they actually perform better after the fact with the shared experiences because they're more applicable. And so I spend more of my time now outside of the Junto world as well, thinking as whether or not the people that I'm working with, interacting with are asking the question that's appropriate for them today. And once we can, and I'll push on that hard, mm -hmm. Once that happens, and once we get to that, whatever the right question is, then it's about sharing what other people have done in those situations versus, and they naturally figure out what they need to do mm -hmm. based upon the fact pattern that's appropriate for them today. Uh, the other part of Junto that was really interesting is the, uh, everyone gets to talk for it once. Um, I'm used to action-oriented board meetings where you have a specific task, a goal, you drive towards conclusion, you move towards the next one. And the individuals who are the most uh, prepared, whether it's for their, their experience, their academic experience, their business experience, to answer the question are usually the one who speaks. And so when it comes to things like finance or capitalization, that's what I'm used to doing. Mm -hmm. And I used to do that in Junto a lot. And uh, I had to relearn that one as well. Same, but it's the same theory of the shared experience. I've had these experiences before. So while I may know the answer, I'm likely not allowing them to learn one, but two, I'm also not allowing myself to learn uh, because 
I'm not listening actively. I'm not being involved if I already know where they're going. And while I may be right most of the time, the times I'm not are more powerful collectively for the group and for me individually. And so uh, I have to remind myself of that as well. You, you asked earlier, what are some things I've been doing? And it's been a short while since we had this conversation. Uh, there's three things that I could think of off the top of my head that I've been actively trying to do. One is I try to stay quiet longer. That's the first one. More information comes in, let people talk. You spoke about the uncomfortable silences. Great. They're wonderful. Second one is uh, leading with love. I'm trying to lead most of my conversations with the positive of what the individuals I'm doing rather than the negative or the, or the solve. Compliment them on the efforts they're trying, the goals, the aspirations, whatever it can be. Find the one thing that's really exciting about what they're doing. And then the last part is not to tell them the answer, but rather to ask questions in a way that'll narrow the options. And you tend to see what happens in those situations is people come to the conclusion and figure out where the dissonance exists much more easily and much more quickly than you would if I told them what it was, which by the way, they may say is the dissonance, but we don't really know. So I've been slowing down. I jokingly say being in bit nicer. <laughs> and I think that for me, that's really been helping me out a lot. Uh, I'm really happy to hear that second one, which was, um, I mean, it's a phrase that we use a lot in Hunto, leading with love, but more importantly, how you're doing that. And you use one of the examples you mentioned was complimenting them on something or giving them encouragement. Um, and the reason that I am happy that you're doing that is because it is amazing how few times as entrepreneurs, we are complimented or encouraged. It's, and you, you know, you've heard this a thousand times. Yep. It's lonely at the top. It's lonely being an entrepreneur, a founder, a CEO, whatever uh, role it is that we have. And as, and we're always beating ourselves up. Um, we're always comparing ourselves to other people, whether we, you know, think it's right or wrong. Um, and if we've got advisors or mentors or consultants or co-founders, colleagues, et cetera, there's criticism coming from all kinds of directions. And it's not like criticism in a bad way. It's healthy criticism, but it's still criticism, right? They're all people who want you to succeed. Yeah. But everybody has an opinion. And the challenge with that, especially as your organization gets larger, is small changes in the front end create large disruptions in the back end. And for an, a, an entrepreneur, even if they're in their head, I mean, that can be hours of time spent on something. And it's out of love, but it's not necessarily helpful. So uh, the last one, which I didn't say, is I'm trying to also give more of myself without expectation. So I, I have a goal of acquiring a network of people who will give first by giving first. And so I give. I used to have an expectation that I would know a way that they would give back. I've been removing that expectation. Now, if someone is a taker and I can fully recognize that, we'll have one nice conversation and it will be over. But I don't mind giving to people who I don't know what the benefit will be for me is anymore. And that's, that's changed over time, over the last few years. But I found that one to be really powerful and important that I keep reminding myself of because the greatest things in my life have come from the intersection of two random connections. And 
you can't have those unless you take the chance and invest into the relationship. So I love that you just said that because, by the way, if you didn't already put two and two together, that's kind of how Hunta was built, right? Um, but what, so how's it been going so far? Like identifying people who are givers versus takers. Like I know it's early, but how oh, is that? I, I fail miserably all the time, right? But I'm failing forward. Mm-hmm. I'm failing with the opportunity of inclusion. Mm-hmm. No, none, none of the individuals or groups that I've spoken to are ones that are going to be of harm to me if they're not helpful. There's low risk. There's low magnitude of the downside, right? But the upside, while the probability low is finding the right one, the upside is tremendous. And that's where you should invest yeah. in those types of experiences. Hmm. All right. Speaking of investing, um, let's kind of bring things here to a more professional place. Um, you're often the only professional investor or maybe even just investor in general on some of these teams that you're on uh, from a mentoring and advising standpoint. And uh, you haven't been in a traditional corporate leadership role um, where you have a lot of personal experiences to share relative to what our companies are facing. And so as a result, you share indirect experiences or those through the lens of others. Talk about what that's been like for you. It's been really interesting. So the uh, with the Junto setup of mentorship being mostly seasoned operating executives or entrepreneurs or uh, whether they're CEOs or founders or people who've worked in entrepreneurial organizations, you have a lot of people who have done and built and grown organizations over time. The largest number of direct reports I've ever had to me in my entire professional career was two. Hmm. And so it's different. Yeah. On the other hand, I have a really unique experience relative to these individuals, which by the way, it took me a while to realize I was a little intimidated by everyone else's direct experience. But rather, I've had sat on boards for years of organizations of 500, 1,000, 2,000, sometimes two people, right? Mm-hmm. Sat on those boards as well, mm-hmm. everything in between. Yeah. And so my lens is very different. And being in a room traditionally of only other investors, some were ex operators, but most people were investors by trade. I'm used to speaking that language. And this is a different language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some real great things about it, and there are some challenging things. There are certain times that I'm at a loss. I don't know what to share. Mm-hmm. And so I'm flipping through the mental Rolodex, trying to see when did a company of mine have a similar experience. And then there's other things that are right down my alley, which, while I may not have had to deal with raising money for myself, um, I've done that 75, 100 times for companies or with companies. Mm-hmm. Look at four or 500 a year type of thing. And I found that having to translate that was a bit of a challenge up front, but after a while it became natural. And the mentorship experiences became more enjoyable because I was able to sit back now more and actually listen to those stories of the people who've done it and now they're part of my stories as well. Mm-hmm. But with all that, I'm the investor of the world and in the room, and a lot of these companies will need to talk about money. So I think it's helpful. Mm-hmm. I always wonder how the other mentor sessions go when they don't have someone like me in the room to talk about raising money and things like that. But uh, it's just different. Yeah, and, and to address that when we – because it comes up – it doesn't come up actually a lot, um, the raising money thing. 
But when it does, uh, I don't, well, uh, probably the best way of me uh, addressing that is we've had well over, I don't know, um, a thousand questions asked in all the mentor meetings over the years. We've cataloged them all. You know, we have them all documented. We've never had one that couldn't be answered. You find the right resource at some point. Well, no, what I mean is in the room. in the room. In the room. And so the point is, is that while there may not be an investor, Mm -hmm. the beauty is, is that using the shared experiences model, a fellow entrepreneur's experience is likely to be more powerful. Maybe not more technically correct, accurate, yep, but more powerful as an experience to share. Right. right? Well, because and on top of that, it's a totally different lens. Yeah. Whereas I can provide the experience of being on the other side of the table and what people may be looking at. They could provide the experience of what it's like to share the story. Yeah. And it's just it's 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 the same room, but totally different emotional ties to the uh, opportunity, what's right. going on. So I want to bring something up here that wasn't planned. You have, since the time we've known each other, and increasingly, maybe in the last two years, you have talked about your kids more as time has gone on. And I get the sense that you're a pretty active and devoted father. How has that I don't want to say changed you, but how has that molded you professionally? Like just the experience of parenthood. Oh, wow. It's heavy. Yeah. Um, so for context, my kids are now eight and 11. And they're more than their own people now. And they're transitioning their view on the world from parent-centric to peer-centric, I think, at this point, or some of them further along. And I would tell you that the thing that it has done most for me, which may be interesting to some, is it has actually calmed me down further. I have a natural reaction when things get stressful to slow down everything. My speech will slow, my breathing slows, my thought patterns slow. Just it's how I was raised, I guess. I don't really yell. I did when they were little, little, because they didn't get anything else. But I, I, that's not a tool I choose to use. And yelling's a tool. Emotional reactions are a tool. So I find that that moves over into the business world as well, that I don't get as agitated about things that I used to before. Now, is that solely attributable to them, or is the other? Is it the reverse? I don't know. But uh, there's a certain perspective that you get as you recognize that their education in the world is not going to be directly based upon you and the things that you and your spouse bring to the table. But rather, others will influence them as well, and it's out of your control. Either you get very comfortable with that, or you become the parent who has to oversee everything. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to the work world as well. Either you get comfortable that other people can do things as well, or you have to micromanage everything. And I've chosen not to micromanage everything on both accounts, but rather to be a sounding board, uh, to be a guide. I could jokingly say a Sherpa because I still carry their luggage. But that's that's the perspective that I get from that experience as well. And it's great. They surprise you all the time. That's the best oh, part. Yeah. And it keeps happening. Oh, yes. Mine are a little bit older. It keeps happening. All right, uh, we're going to transition into closing appreciations, just like we do in our program. Um, You want to start or would you like me to? I'll start. Um, I'm thankful for a few things. 
one, I had a challenging health year last year. Uh, that has mostly subsided. We're talking 95, 98% of the way there. And when you have certain health issues going on, there's a real challenge. And I'm very, very, very thankful that that is not taking up mind share as much as it once did. On the other hand, uh, I, um, well, I'm also thankful that I have this as a resource because I now have to go back into thinking about how do I apply myself now that I have my health back. And uh, that's exciting. Nervous, exciting, everything, but it's great. Uh, and I'm very appreciative that I have our relationship to be able to lean on doing that, much like I did a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you. Um, I appreciate that you are a classic example of the old phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover. Because as I shared in my opening um, intro of you, uh, on paper, there's that Mike Chopin. But then the Mike Chopin that we get to a few of us get to experience in person um, is so much deeper and greater and wider and grander, just like every human being. Um, and I've really appreciated being able to read that book. It's kind of you to say. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and not taking for granted what I saw on the cover, you know, four years ago. So really appreciate just who you are. If you haven't already please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode this episode was produced by dante 32